Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 19, We Want to See Jesus. What is a mystic? What did Jesus mean when he told us to hate our lives? What is Jesus' highest value? Answers to these questions and more in this further study of John chapter 12. We've been going through John's gospel last week. It seems like we slow down. The further we go, we're just kind of digging in deeper and deeper. And uh, one of the common themes of this whole series has been the, the, the multi-dimensional aspect of the gospel, and I would say particularly of John's gospel. Just to remind you folks, John's gospel was written a generation later than the three what are called synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, it, was, it was written to an audience where where this brand new thing called the church was beginning to develop. Uh, he was addressing issues that had hardly even been thought of uh, a generation earlier. And I would say, as I have really delved into the writings of John, I think that the reality is that he was, he was probably the most mystical of, of the four gospel writers. And by... Uh, mystical, all I mean is a mystic is someone who really experiences the presence of God and, and pursues that. Uh, I want to be careful if I said that out loud. I don't want people to say, oh, then I'm, I don't experience. No, no, no. But, but a mystic, that's really where they're, where they're going at. Last week we did the first half of uh, John 12. And uh, this week we're going to read portions, major portions, of John uh, 20 through 50, which we're only going to verse 50 because there is no 51. Um, If somebody with a loud voice would be so kind as to read John 12, verses 20 to 23. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from the Sabbath in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Um, Some of these portions we're going to go over pretty quickly, and some we're going to slow right down on. But we have uh, Greeks... Uh, were among those who went up to worship at the festival and they came to Philip. Uh, Greeks is, was a, just a generic term, meaning a Greek-speaking Gentiles uh, who would have come from all over the Roman Empire. Greek, I think everybody knows, was the, was the, um, the common language for centuries. Um, and they said, we want to see Jesus. It's interesting. I was trying to get to the bottom of it, but a number of commentators say that in the word that they use for see, there is the inference of believe in, which is interesting. They're saying we're, we want to believe in Jesus. Now, that simple, almost innocuous saying, Philip, we want to see Jesus It's like a trigger point in John's narrative. I've said to you again and again, nothing is wasted in John. Um, To review, at the end of his gospel, he says, "If I I suppose if I tried to write everything he said and did, the, the world itself wouldn't contain the books. So everything 
he writes is really, really strategic. And even the stuff that seems small, we want to see Jesus, and this triggers a shift in the narrative. Earlier in John's Gospel, when Jesus is pressed, he says, no, no, he says, my hour has not come yet. This time he says, my hour has come. Which is an interesting response to a seemingly pretty innocuous question. I think it's that Jesus was waiting for this, and he sees it as a sign that his time had come. The gospel had been, until now, confined almost totally uh, to uh, the Jewish people. We, very few little exceptions. Um, uh, Matthew 15, the, the Canaanite or Syrophoenician woman. Um, it's, it's a big enough deal that they make a point of saying they're not a Jew because the gospel, at this point, the message of the gospel was for the Jewish people. So now they say, we want to see Jesus. He knows that his message is about to cross the Jordan, which, if you think about it, again, we've got in the whole Exodus story, what's the culmination, where's the real shift there? It's when they cross the Jordan to go into the promised land, right? Joshua chapter 1, 2, 3. Well, now he knows he's going to cross the Jordan in the other direction. Let's go to the next three verses, uh, 24, 25, and 26. Could somebody, in a nice loud voice, so the, the uh, video picks it up? Thanks. I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Thank you. This passage... I still remember the night, it kind of just, boom. You know how sometimes you read the Bible and it just jumps at you? And I still remember that night, I think it was about 1978, that's a long time ago. But it was so strong, it never left me. Um, Jesus is saying, unless a, a grain of wheat, a kernel of corn, depending how ancient your translation is, unless this seed dies, it'll remain by itself alone. Jesus is announcing his impending death. And I think, again, thematically, John is addressing this at two levels. One, Jesus is just speaking of himself. He is saying it again, I am going to die. But he's also saying, and we'll see how this develops in a couple verses from now, he's speaking of the impending death of all those who will follow him. John putting this together right after chapter 11 He's connecting the narrative with Lazarus' death. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked quite a lot about the significance of, of Lazarus' death. So Jesus is once again making a point that we saw in the past two weeks. I said to you before that, that John is stating with, without death there can be no resurrection. Remember we talked about that? Um... What he's saying here, he turns that just a little and he says, but death ultimately will lead to fruitfulness. It, it's full of promise here. Jesus is telling his disciples that there's no other way 
for my translation says a large crop uh, of salvation to come except through his death. Now last week when we were in the first half of, uh, of John 12, uh, Dan, you made a few comments and I said, I want to hear more about that. So do you want to come and come in front so people can hear you and see you? This is the one and only Dan Gross. Let's give it up for Dan. Yay! <laughs> wow. So um, I want to just bridge off of something that, that uh, Steve said about, about those kind of watershed moments sometimes you'll read or hear or see something or hear something in a sermon from, a, from the scripture and it just, it just grabs you. <clears throat> and that's what this passage was for me. I recall a moment and I'll just give you brief, uh, a brief description of what happened and then how that unfolded for me. But, but I was listening to this on The Faith Comes By Hearing uh, dramatized Bible version uh, of this, this story, this gospel. And which I highly recommend, by the way, because there's nothing like just hearing it read as a story. It's, it's amazing from start to finish through the Gospel of John or any other Gospel. But what grabbed my attention is this phrase, and Steve alluded to it. Now there were some Greeks who came up and this word, these words that they said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And I just, I stopped and I backed up. Back then it was a cassette tape, right? So backed it up and listened to it again, backed it up and listened to it again. And... Um, <clears throat> that started me on a journey of, contemp- of, of contemplating this passage and, and it just started opening to me and like Steve said about the gospel more than any other gospel and I agree with that completely it, it just has layers of meaning and as I began to contemplate this it, com- it just continued to unfold and I got more and more and more out of it so I just want to share a little bit about that I'm not going to go into tremendous length uh, go to tremendous length to describe that to you but <clears throat> but I want to I want to talk about something that it says here in this these two scriptures here where it, where clearly Jesus is using a natural example to speak of his impending death and resurrection with the grain the grain of uh, wheat falling to the ground. Um, he adds something in here that really is very very intriguing, and he says this. In verse 25, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So not only is he tying in, uh, as Steve mentioned, Lazarus' death and resurrection, not only is he alluding to, uh, I think, you know, if you if you really look back at the thread of this theme all through, uh, you know, from before Lazarus' death till Jesus' death and resurrection, if you follow this thread all the way through, not only is he alluding to uh, his death and resurrection, but he's, he's tapping into the example that they've already seen, these people who are hearing this have already seen and heard of Lazarus' death and resurrection, but he's also speaking to those who will read this, in my opinion, from now on, from this point on, that any man who clings to his life, who loves his life, who doesn't let himself be tossed to the ground and die will remain a single seed. But he who does die to self or lets go of his life or hates his life, as it says in this, in this version of the scriptures, will remain a single seed. So 
let's go back and just think about the, the literal example, the literal thing he's saying. Everybody knows, if you've ever planted a garden, you take a seed, you plant it in the ground, the, the husk dies, the, the exterior dies, but there's something inside there, a germ, that has life in it. Mm-hmm. And this is the case with us as we believe by faith we receive something and it's born again. But there has to be something that happens in our life that creates a transitional, transformational experience. And I believe that's characterized by what Jesus is saying here in death. It's death. For, for Mary, Lazarus, and Martha, it was Lazarus' death. And if you look at that, we were, I was speaking about this just briefly last week. If you look at how they were transformed by Lazarus' death, you know, Mary at one point was sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him. And this is when Martha got mad and, and, and uh, scolded, or really kind of scolded Jesus for letting it happen. Uh, <clears throat> you see Mary there, and she's, she's got devotion, she's got dedication, she's enraptured with the man Jesus, who just has these words that give life, as Peter described it. And yet, afterwards, after the transition, the things that they went through, uh, with Lazarus' death that, that had to have affected them deeply. I was thinking about this today, Steve, that, that uh, you know, I've never lost a sibling. I've never lost a child. But here's this, these sisters who went through the death three days later of the death of their brother, what that did to them inside, the grief that they experienced, uh, the anguish, and even what they said to Jesus if you had been here. You know, but nevertheless, we know you're the resurrection and the life. But it was a, faith, a statement of faith, but that became reality for them. So they experienced this transformation. And then Mary's reaction, which we learned about the, the, the revelation of glory in her, which was worship of Jesus by breaking the alabaster container and pouring out the nard and wiping his, his feet with her hair. And that not, uh, with that mark. And then we hear Jesus say here that his hour, it's his hour to be glorified. So there's this glorification that comes out of death. And so really that's my, that's kind of the thing that I get from this passage, Steve, is just this, there is something that each and every one of us must go through. It's not something that we can go around or go over or, or, you know, run away from. Each of us has to go through something that causes us to die to the things that are us. Mm-hmm. So that we can experience this transformation and that Jesus can really be glorified through us. So that the glory of Christ can be released through us. And it's pain. Mm-hmm. It's death. It's difficulty. So... Uh, I mean, I, I can't even say these words without thinking that there's probably people who are struggling, you know. Well, you know, I, I, if, if that's the case, you're in the midst of grief, write to us. I would love to pray for you. And I think I'll end with that. Gino has a comment. Most of the time you're talking about dying, it almost always comes in relationship with people. That yeah. seems to me to be where the most of the place where we have to die is always in relationship with others. That seems to be the big thing that God uses to dig us up and, and change us. I would have to agree with that, Gino. Some of the most difficult, the difficult things, I'm, like I said, I've never lost a, a sibling or a, 
or even a parent. Both my parents are still alive, or uh, a child. But I have gone through betrayal, and that's a relational pain that is so difficult. But it's it's the things that Jesus takes us through that are extremely painful in relationships. That on the other side, there's a release of something fantastic. And that theme is a thread all through Scripture as well. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Steve. And, and thanks for the opportunity to share a little bit. Yay! Let's hear it for Dan! <laughs> thanks, Dan. Dan and I got to go to Eastern Europe together two, three months ago. We had quite a time. Well, as I've said again and again, the, the Scriptures are multi-dimensional. They're this deep. And, and I think that it's way too easy and way too common for us to read them almost two-dimensionally. But they're, they're very deep. So I'm going to go back over a few verses that you just covered and see if I can bring out another couple of things. He says, um, The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. By the way, um, I've got a, a, a new, very, very, extremely literal translation. And when he says, the one who hates his life, what he really said was, the one who hates his life. Just thought I'd cheer you up with that. Um, um, but here's what he's really saying. The one who loves his life. The word there in Greek is psyche. And uh, uh, the one who who uh, loves his psyche. The word for life, this word, means your mind, your soul, your personality, in the sense of your character, your, your psychological tendencies. That's the one who loves his psyche. Um, <coughs> and the one who hates, which simply means to despise or detest, his psyche, his personality, his tendencies... In this world, life controlled by the values of the world um, is, is life controlled through, through the world's grid, the, the worldview of, of wealth and sensuality and power. And Christina and I were talking about the Grammys the other day, and you know, what I know about modern music is just about nothing. But it's news right now that that ninety one percent of the recording artists are men uh, who win awards. And she said, "Did you ever notice that the the way a woman has to sell a song mm -hmm. is is basically with her body, whereas a guy just gets up and sings his song? It's part of this this sensuality, wealth, power. The need for recognition is huge. In uh, all of these are idolatry." So, the one who loves his psyche, his personality, and then he says, but the one who hates his psyche in this world will keep it for eternal life. He says, if you love your life, you lose it, but if you, if you give it up, if you hate it, you get your life. That seems kind of confusing. That's again because we've got this whole thing with English being a much poorer language than, than Greek. What he said was, uh, but the one who hates his psyche will keep it for eternal life, eternal Zoe. And this means 
This life means absolute fullness, that which is real, that which is genuine, and that which is vigorous. Isn't that interesting? So he's saying, if you love, this is just the way I am, these are my preferences, this is my personality, you know, this is the, my soul, and you hold on to that, then you're not going to get Zoe life, which is this abundant, vigorous um, life. So Jesus is presenting a choice between two options. In order to live Zoe, everybody, if I just say Zoe, we know what we're talking about here, right? In order to live Zoe now, and not in the great hereafter, that, that's Platonism. That was un, unknown and unthought of for the first several centuries of, of the church. Abundant life, eternal life begins now. So in order to live Zoe now, we must die to our need and are holding on to psyche life. We must die to our need for recognition and admiration and power. And so we get to choose. We can either in this life radically live Zoe, or we can radically fail to live. So now John is leading us further and deeper into the riches of God, of life in Christ. I mean, it started rich in the prologue, which I told you a lot of scholars think he probably wrote it when he got to the end. He went back and wrote the beginning. But this whole thing takes us deeper and deeper and deeper um, into the riches, the riches of Christ, which is a term I love Paul uses in, uh, in Ephesians. And he says, but if I die, as Dan talked about, I will draw all people to me. Verse 32. Lots of us know that, right? But <coughs> I think we're missing something on the all. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to people, a nation that saw all non-Jews, all Gentiles, as a threat and as their essential enemies. We talked about that several weeks ago, how it was shifting. But now, as we come down to the climax, he's saying, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. So he says, the way to Zoe life is to hate our life in this world, to hate the holding on, to that's just the way I am. And uh, as I told you, when, when Jesus said hate, he did not mean in comparison to our love for something else, because we've all heard that message. It's not true. The, the grammar is flat out hate. It's strong stuff. As I'm going through, parenthetically, as I'm going through this uh, new translation of the New Testament that is radically literal, you realize how our translations have softened the gospel here and there. What is it that you have? I have uh, by uh, David Bentley Hart, uh, a new translation of the New Testament. Um, so, to hate our psyche life, our habits, our prejudices, our greed, our self-protection, uh, the very way that we view the world, he says, if you hate your life, it's that you hate this psyche life. To refuse, he calls us to refuse to defend it from the light of the Holy Spirit. To it's radical. It's radical. You know, in our... 
North American Christianity, which I've said to you before, is rather syncretic. It's, 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 we've kind of absorbed the socioeconomic, political, cultural climate and put a Christian cover on it. I, you've heard me talk about this before. But in our North American Christianity, all you got to do is watch the news, uh, watch some Christian TV, and you'll see that in that blended North American Christianity, the highest value is freedom. Remember the, the great movie, uh, Braveheart? Freedom! <laughs> this is clearly not Jesus' highest value. His is canonic love. Freedom, my North American friends, is absolutely not a high value in the gospel. Absolutely not. Uh, neither is patriotism and nationalism and, and, and on and on. The highest value, as I've tried to share with you again and again, is canonic love. If you're new, that's canonic, K-E-N-O-T-I-C. It's from kenosis, and it means self-emptying. In Philippians 2, Paul says, have this attitude, be like the one you're following, who emptied himself. Canonic love, not freedom. I think there's a correlation between death to my life, my psyche life, and openness to the lives of others. I think the two are absolutely connected. And so I think as we learn to lose our lives, uh, as it's put in the Synoptic Gospels, or hate our life, as it's put in John's Gospel, that we, we begin to become others-focused, and we recognize and we bless and encourage the gift of God, the Zoe life in others. We start to become much more aware of that in others, and we call it forth. Oneness with Jesus, I think, must lead to oneness with others. I have fought for this. I, I, as I've done conferences in different countries on, on justice and mercy and worship, and, and I've encountered people saying, well, that's not my calling. My calling is to pray. And I said, but if you know him, if you, if you really know him, then you will love justice. Or they know the Bible. Yeah. Matthew, uh, Psalm 11.7 links it beautifully about loving justice and knowing him. Could I want to look at a parallel passage because clearly, folks, as I've said to you before, we use the example if there was a car crash out there and four of us saw it in a police game, we'd give four slightly different versions of the same event, right? That's why the four Gospels give us four aspects of Christ. Uh, here's the parallel passage to what we've just read. It's in Matthew. Somebody want to go to Matthew 16, 24 to 26. I told you on different occasions through this series that the single most repeated saying of Christ is the one we're on right now. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses it for my sake shall find it. Okay? Can somebody, or do you... To 26. 6 or 16? Uh, 16. Okay. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come to me, come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Again, we've got Jesus saying it through the pen of Matthew. If we're willing to lose or die to um, our psyche life, which is a lifelong process, it is a daily decision to surrender to the light of God shining upon us. The promise is if you commit to that, you'll find it. You'll find life. I was spending time this weekend in uh, Luke, and you hang around... Luke 14, Luke 16, he is so serious about this issue of taking up our cross daily and dying. It's a, it's, it is this decision that when the Spirit of God shines His light on something in our life, our psyche life, we get to either take up our cross and say, you're right, and, and let the pain of, of God deal with that, or we say, that's just the way I am. And I think the choice to die to our psychological life patterns and preferences can only come from a deep place of Zoe. That's why, bluntly, the older I get, the more time I I have to have in quiet and in His presence. There's no merit in that. It's just my reality. I just have to. Because for me, I think it's the only way he goes deep and touches the deep things in me and brings about that lifelong process of change only happens out of me experiencing and being in that place of Zoe, the life of Christ that's in me, that's in us. But we've got to choose to draw from it. it Everybody says, oh yeah, Christ in me, the hope of glory, right? Colossians 1, 27. But, but it's not a phrase. It's we need to learn the lifelong journey of learning to really draw from that life. And I think we only do it in a quiet place. Out of a growing well of experiencing Him, of that life, that incredible, overflowing, vigorous, I love that adjective, vigorous life. Uh, of of uh, that Zoe life. It's from that place of Zoe that we know and experience being loved by Jesus. You know, a, a verse that I've always found fascinating is um, uh, John 5.20. He says to the religious people, the Father loves the Son. And the word he used is phileo, and, it, and it, it, in that context it means physical touch. He's saying, the Father embraces me, we are that close. And it enraged the religious people. Mm-hmm. I am convinced that religion can only hope that they have a relationship with God. That what we're called to is experience it. Mm-hmm. And that is, at least for me, that's a very slow journey. Mm-hmm. You know, of uh, 41, 42 years now. But the longer I go, the more time I need. 
And again, there's nothing meritorious about that. It's just the reality as he's starting to take things deeper. So, this place of Zoe love, this place of the presence of God, is where we embrace our brokenness and where we honestly face our psyche life. The things we call, well, that's just, that's from my mother's side. <laughs> you know, or that's the way I am, or whatever. But when the light shines on it, we begin to embrace our brokenness. I've told you before, what is denied cannot be healed. And so, this is why, personally, and I was just talking to somebody about this again the other day. Personally, I believe that I need the poor and the weak way more than they need me. Way more than they need me. And that's just not a nice little Christian phrase. I know it. I wrote a little thing last week and I was amazed. People responded from all over. Where it was, there was no big, no, nobody was raised from the dead, no blind eyes were open. But I was confronted again that I needed to get out among the poor to find my balance. I need them more than they need me. Because as I open myself up, as I expose myself to their weakness, their obvious weakness, and their obvious brokenness, it is no more broken and no more weak than I am. It's just theirs is, they're wearing it on their sleeve. And as I'm confronted with that, as I open myself up to that, I realize that the poor, they're like a mirror to my true self, who I really am. Mm with all my brokenness and all my inconsistencies and all the areas that I just, God, am I ever going to grow in that? So I, I really, really need them. And when I'm with the poor, it presses me into this Zoe life in Christ. Mm -hmm. And it has for years. Often some of my most profound times in God are when I'm in some country in a garbage dump or walking down some way. Because there's something raw and there's something really honest about it. This week's episode is brought to you by Our Journey to India. Each year, Impact Nations partners with our friend Randeep as he and his amazing team seek to break new ground in northern India. Every year, Randeep brings us to villages where no one has ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before we arrive, a team has scouted the region, prayed through towns, and identified a man of peace in the community. Then we go into those villages and demonstrate the gospel through medical clinics, water filter distribution, and healing the sick in Jesus' name. And every year, churches spring up as a result of our journey of compassion. Hundreds of churches have been started in recent years as the gospel has radically changed lives. How do you like to say that you were there when the gospel came and changed a village? Join us February 10th to the 22nd. Register today at impactnations.com slash India. And now, back to the podcast. Um, anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me. Say must. Must. Follow me, because my servants must be where I am. And so, I love this verse. I've been using this as I've been teaching in some different cities and stuff. I'm following Jesus because I'll have fun. There'll be a crowd out there, congregation or conference. I'll say, how many of you want to be a disciple? Or how many of you are a disciple of Jesus? Every hand, yay, praise the Lord. <laughs> how, many of, how many of you want to follow him? Yeah, hallelujah. <laughs> well then, 
how many of you are going to be, want to be where he is because he's probably not here? And they just get silent. And then I unwrap that because I don't want them to think that their church is godless. It's that Jesus was on the move. When he said, come follow me, for example, uh, let's see, uh, Matthew 4, 20, 22, where he says, come follow me. We talked about this a few weeks ago. There's a job to do. I'm going to teach you to be fishers of men. But he, he didn't say, sing songs about following me. He didn't say, we're going to have a Wednesday night prayer meeting about following Jesus. He just said, follow me. And when we see Jesus in the Gospels, this is why I, I spend time in the Gospels every day. He's always on the move. Right? He's always on the move. So he says, if you want to be my disciple, you got to follow me. And if you're going to follow me, you got to be where I am. And that's where it always gets quiet. That's where it always gets quiet. So I won't say any more than that, although I'd love to go on and on. But that's where the life is. That's where Zoe is. That's where he is. He said... You know, he said three significant times, he said, go. He said in Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, religious activity. He did not say learn. Go to the New Believers class, the Baptism class, the Foundations <laughs> class, the 201, 301, 401, and then go. He said, go. And as you go, you'll learn. Mm -hmm. I tell pastors all over the world, I say, the longer you keep people in the chairs, the harder it is to get them out of the chairs. Mm -hmm. And I say, you can take that to the bank. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, I think it's verse 37, after he tells this story, he says, now go and do likewise. Not go and think about it. Don't, he didn't say go and meditate on it. He says, go and do it. And at the, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, uh, 19, he says to do all this stuff, make disciples, baptize, teach them to obey everything, and I'm with you as you go. It's a go gospel. Uh, you know, Randeep and I, when we're traveling together, we're always telling people it's a go gospel. It's not a come gospel. It's not a come to church gospel. It's a go gospel. So he says, if you want to be my disciple... Then you got to follow me. And if you're going to follow me, hello, you got to be where I am. Okay? That's why he said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, an incredible collection of teaching we have, Matthew 5, 6, 7. And the last thing, he sums up the teaching by saying, oh, by the way, those of you who hear my words and say, that's it. I'm going to let them change me. I'm going to let your, your Zoe change my psyche. <laughs> Those are the ones who built their house on a rock. And those of you who heard my words and also said, those are great words. I love those words. Man, I'm going to get the CDs. <laughs> but doesn't let them change them. You are in the self-delusion of building your life on sand. Jesus didn't pull punches. Shall I move on? Does anybody still like me? <laughs> okay. Uh, now let's go to Matthew uh, 20, uh, sorry, we're in John. Uh, John 12, uh, 27 to 36. That stuff I just talked on is just what comes out of me. Because I watch people come alive when they go out. I watch it, I watch it, 
I watch it. I watch it in Toronto last month. I watched it in Bulgaria three weeks before that. I'm going to watch it next month when we go out and follow Jesus' life. Vigorous life, which is another aspect of Zoe. So I need to stop talking and get back to teaching. All right. Uh, Verses 27 to 36. It's a bit of a long one. My soul is, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. That is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Oh, I just put that down twice somehow, didn't I? Or is it in there twice? Uh, As for me, I am lifted up from the earth. And I will, as I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to signify what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the law and the, that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus answered, The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness does not overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Jesus said this, and then went away and hid from them. Okay, we're going to go a little quicker because I see the time. He says, my soul is troubled. Literally is agitated. Or disturbed. Just like I told you a few minutes ago, the passage we just did in, in uh, verses 24 and 25 are paralleled in the synoptics. Remember, we just did Matthew, uh, Matthew 16. This is also a parallel to what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. All right, I don't know if you've ever noticed that before, but that's what this is. We don't see Jesus in his arrest being in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where he is. But the words are very, very similar. He says, my soul is troubled. In, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, he says, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow. So be aware of the parallel, that the same thing is happening just told from a different angle. And then he says this. This is an amazing verse. I'm troubled. I'm agitated. I'm in distress. But what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? Like Gethsemane. Gethsemane. He's where he says... Nevertheless, you know, he says, Lord, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. But then he's resolved. Then he says, nevertheless, not my will that yours be done. We see, just like in Gethsemane, the complete, authentic humanity of Christ. Back to where we were at the beginning of this gospel. Fully man. Fully God. We really do, in our day and age, tend to downplay the humanity and amplify the divinity as if they could be separated. 
I told you that Jesus, when he wept at Lazarus' death, we saw a very human, human moment. Fully human and fully God. Not 50% and 50%. Fully human, fully God. So he's in agony. And then he says, the hour has come. He said it in verse 23. He says it again. The hour has come. And he refuses to be rescued by the Father. Interesting, huh? It's all coming on him. The darkness is piling on. But just like in the garden, we see his humanity, and yet he's resolute for the purpose of God to be unfolded. Father, glorify your name, he said in front of everybody there, right? Jesus' plea is that the Father's plan be fully carried out. That nothing stops it. Nothing distracts it. That He's got the strength to go through it. It's like when we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, right? In the Lord's Prayer. By the way, this is an aside, but did you know that, that the grammar of that is actually written uh, in the emphatic? It's it more truthfully translated it's not just thy kingdom come thy will be done it's come thy kingdom be done thy will it's a very strong phrase that's just an aside because we're not teaching on the Lord's prayer tonight and I just went down a little road didn't I <laughs> <laughs> then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it and I will glorify it again do you realize this is the first time in John's gospel that the voice of the father is heard in Mark 1, I think 9 to 11, we hear, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But not, not in John's when he's baptized. This is the first time. Now let's look at this for a second. We're on the home stretch. Everybody still awake? Yeah. Okay. The voice comes from heaven. Father speaks and says, when he says, Father, glorify your name, he comes back, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. What did the Father mean by these statements? What did He mean? He's glorified in the miracles. He, he was glorified in the miracles that Jesus did? Very good. That relates back to what we did in John 10, isn't it? 1038. If you can't believe me, believe the miracles. Okay? He was glorified. I have glorified it in the miracles that took place. Okay, that's good. Is he glorified at his baptism? Glorified at his baptism? Okay. Uh, I'm thinking of a birth because you know, when the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest, so the revelation at the advent is uh, another okay. possibility. Okay, that's very incarnational, isn't it? Yeah. At, the, at the beginning, he's glorified. I have glorified it when he says, Father, Abba Father, glorify your name. I have. Miracles at the birth. What did you say to him? At his baptism. At his baptism. Holy Spirit is a dove descending. And I will glorify it again. What's he saying? The cross. The cross? The resurrection? The ascension? The ascension? The release of the Holy Spirit? <laughs> I just think there's an awful lot packed into that. And it's very easy for me to just read over and go, oh yeah, I know the next verse, I know that verse. What's he talking about? 
Did he? Could it mean? I just glorified it. You ask for it. Before you ask, I will answer, says the Lord, right? And Isaiah, he says, I got it. I have glorified. I don't know. I don't have a right answer. Uh, so we've got verses 31. I'm going to go back here. 31 to 36. Uh, As for me, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw men to me. He said this to signify what kind of death he was about to die. Um... And 35, he says, The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. Interesting word. While you have the light, believe in the light so you may become sons of light. And then he went away and hid from them. So let's just touch a couple of things. These are Jesus' final public words. And you're reading your Bible and go, Wait a minute. At verse 44, I got more red. But these are his final public words. He slipped away after verse 36. I'm going to explain that in a minute. It's not very mysterious. Um, And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. Um, It's really interesting that in verse 31, which I hope I have enough light here to see. Verse 31. Somebody help me here. Verse 31 says... Now is the time for judgment on this world. Yeah. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Thank you. The word world is actually cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S. And again, if you go back to a good literal translation, we'll say, it will not just say the ruler of this world, but the ruler of the whole flippin' cosmos, of a fallen cosmos. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? But he's going to be driven out. So Jesus is announcing there is a great battle coming. This is part of why I'm pretty big on on, on the whole atonement theme of what's called Christus Victor. That at the cross, the primary work of Christ was was a victorious work. His primary work was to defeat the enemy, defeat the powers, defeat sin um, and death. And then he says... The ruler of this cosmos is cast down. If I am lifted up, you see the contrast John's using, uh, yours might say cast away, but cast down is, is probably the better translation. The ruler of this cosmos is cast down. If I'm lifted up, we're seeing this juxtaposition. The time that brings glory to Jesus and expulsion to the enemy has come. We know as we look ahead, that it's only hours away. But he said, the time has come. The setting's really interesting. If you look at this, <coughs> this is, i got a few places in the Gospels that no matter how many years, how many times I read them, I see them in my mind. We all see in our mind as we see this. I see them in black and white. And this is another one. There is just darkness. There's this, there's this um, Picture of increasing darkness closing in and closing in and closing in. And the the powers that be. Remember we talked last week about Caiaphas. And and really being a tool of the powers that be. And uh, in Luke 22.53, he says, This is your hour and the dominion of darkness. So this is, there's an urgency. He's saying, quick, while I'm here, quick, because darkness is coming. Um, Verse 32, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. 
He said this, verse 33, to signify what kind of death he was about to die. I don't know about you, but as a young evangelical in my early 20s, they always had us know this verse, you got to lift him up everywhere, lift him up, lift him up, lift him up, and then he'll draw all men unto you. That's a nice evangelical slash charismatic sentiment, but that's not what he meant. That doesn't mean it's not a good thing to do. But John says right here, did he mean, if, you know, my name is made famous? No. Verse 33, Jesus said this to signify what kind of death he was about to die. It clearly refers to the crucifixion, not the future proclamation of Christ in the gospel. The power of the evil one to blind the eyes will be broken and begin to diminish through the power of the cross. It is broken at the cross, but the powers that be are in a retreat slower than we'd like. And the kingdom is advancing. In fact, I'm thrilled. You know, I've said to the folks in this room, there's still a week. If anybody wants to come to India with me, you will see what is one of the fastest growing church planning movements in the world. The kingdom is advancing at like this multiplication, almost exponential growth. I would like to see the kingdom of darkness retreating a little quicker, wouldn't we all? But indeed, from the moment of the cross, the power, the, the essential power of, uh, of the demonic powers was broken. And this is what he's talking about. Okay? Some final notes. Verse 41. Uh, he's quoting, because we're going to go quick now. He's, he's quoting uh, from Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, and and again, I don't know that but you know, Lord, who has believed our message? Um, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, etc., etc. John says that Isaiah in verse forty-one. Oh yeah, here's what I wanted you to see. After he quotes Isaiah, John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Isaiah 6, 1-5, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, you know, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus, is what John says consistently. In John 8, 56, John says that Abraham saw Jesus' day. That's why in 58 he said, before Abraham was, I am. Remember? John clearly says it was the glory of Jesus that Isaiah saw. Therefore, John, at this point, is being completely consistent with John 1.14 in the prologue, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was active in the Old Testament. Absolutely active, and that's John's uh, worldview. Now, I'm, I'm going to go real fast. 44 to 50 are like a coda. Do you know what a coda is in music? It's like... Oh, the composer's excited. Oh, I just got to add this. I got I to say this. And so, Jesus left the scene in 36. And yet, at this point, John has attached another short discourse. It doesn't mean that he didn't write the passage. Much more likely, he went back later and inserted it. Oh, this would be good here too. Um, then Jesus cried out, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, 
but to save the world. I've loved that verse for years. The one who rejects me and doesn't accept my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me uh, <coughs> what to speak. I know that his command is eternal life, so the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. I'm not going to take the time, but if you would make a point of looking at that very famous passage, John 3:16, and go through to 19, you will see parallel language, parallel concept in John. Okay? I mean, they're both John's Gospel. Um, it is not Jesus who condemns. It is that God allows us always. His, his permissive... The, I think the wrath of God is His consent, actually. He consents to us even when our behavior is self-destructive. Even when our behavior is moving us away from Zoe. And so it is not Jesus who condemns. God allows us to pursue our, our psyche life, our own personality, our own preferences. That's the way I am. And, and, it is, and it's that life which destroys us. I don't think it's the anger of God, the wrath of God. And that's going to be another topic for another night. How did I get into that? It wasn't in my notes. But the wrath of God is, is I believe, is the consent of God. He, he gave them over, Paul says repeatedly in Romans 1. He gave them over, I think, with pain, because there's, there's consequences. Well, that's it for episode 19. Join me next week as I discuss your questions with our friend Carlos Rodriguez. If you have questions you'd like us to address, send them to podcast at impactnations.com. Also, please, I urge you, consider coming with us to India this coming February. I'll be there, Steve will be there, Randeep will be there, you should be there. Go to impactnations.com slash India to learn more. Thanks and have a great week.